Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Friends in Fiction is sponsored by Mama Geraldine's Bodacious Foods, the company that makes Mama Geraldine's cheese straws, which come in six varieties and are the best-selling cheese straws in the United States. Founded by former radio executive Kathy Cunningham and named for her mother, they have melt-in-your-mouth cookies too, delicious treats, and a woman-owned empire. Now that is something that friends in fiction can really get behind. Try them. You'll be so glad you did. Get 20% off on your online order at mamageraldines.com with the code FAB5. Snack on, y'all. We'd also like to thank our other sponsor, Page One Books, who offer a book subscription package that we love. They hand-select books for you each month based on your preferences and their book knowledge. And because the reads are being chosen by actual independent booksellers, you know you're more than just an algorithm. The subscription package, which can run 3, 6, or 12 months, is a perfect gift for a book lover, even if that book lover is you. Page One Books, the personal touch of an indie bookstore with the delight and surprise of an online subscription service curated just for you. First-time subscribers get 10% off with the code FAB5 at pageonebooks.com. Today, we are so excited to talk to Jessica Strasser about her new book, A Million Reasons Why. I love that Jessica's tagline on her website is where fact meets fiction. And just as in this novel where a woman discovers she has a half-sister through the medical miracle of DNA testing, hailed by writers like Jodi Picot and Jocelyn Jackson, we cannot wait to talk to her today about this story. I'm Patty Callahan. Jessica is the editor-at-large at Writer's Digest, where she served as editorial director for nearly a decade. Honored as the 2019 Writer-in-Residence at the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, Strasser has written for the New York Times Modern Love, Publishers Weekly, and other fine venues, and lives in Cincinnati with her husband and two children. A contributing editor for career authors and an active tall poppy writer, her fourth novel, A Million Reasons Why, was just released. I am Christy Woodson-Harvey, and I'm so excited you're here, Jessica. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, Jessica, tell our listeners the hook, line, and sinker of A Million Reasons Why. I love the tagline, would you change everything to change the life of someone who is turning your life upside down. Hook, you've got me. I'm done. 
So A Million Reasons Why is about two adults living in different states. One is in Cincinnati, Ohio, and one is in Brevard, North Carolina, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And they are linked as half-sisters, as you said, by a DNA test. So one of them, Sela, who lives in North Carolina, she knew... She always knew there was a possibility she had more family out there. She grew up with a single mother and always knew that she didn't know her father. So she has sort of allowed herself to be talked into taking this test for a medical reason. She's very sick with chronic kidney disease, and um, she has a better chance of finding a live organ donor match from a family member, and all her known family members have been tested, and, and no one is a match. But she has major reservations about doing the test for that reason. She really lets herself be talked into it more out of curiosity, knowing that she could have a, a sibling out there and a father out there. Whereas the other sister um, in Cincinnati, she's a busy mother of three. She's very close with her parents. She's very close with her in-laws. She has absolutely no clue that there could be anything else out there. The only reason she has taken a DNA test was as part of a Christmas gift. Her whole family took it and found out, you know, what percentage Irish they are and really put no thought into the fact that there could be other implications for having taken that test. And, you know, I never, ever talk about the premise of this book um, on Facebook or at a bookstore or at a library without somebody saying, oh, that happened to me or that happened to uh, somebody, my neighbor, my friend, somebody that I know. There, there are so many real stories along these lines out there. Yeah, it's so true. I've written about some things like similar, not this exact thing, but you know, similar situations. And it is amazing how many people have been like affected by this DNA testing. I mean, it's opened up just all of the secrets too, that it's opened up that people never expected to be, you know, let out of the bag. I mean, there are a lot of implications. And I think that's why the premise of this novel drew me in so quickly because I was just like, yes, I mean, this is going to be happening to so many people. And we don't really think about, you know, the implications of what we're doing when we set out to, you know, take that little 23andMe that's in our stocking, like you said. Um, but I am always so curious about the origin story of a novel and where it comes from. So what was your like, ah, yes, this is the book I'm going to write. Did you have that moment or did it come to you little by little? Well, I'm not one of those authors who has like fully formed novel ideas cluttering up my office. I just have little things that interest me. I have more a list of like random topics or professions that always seem to catch my interest. And as you know, it takes, you have to really be kind of into something to want to write about it <laughs> for an entire year. And one of the things I noticed was all of these real life stories of surprise DNA test results just kept catching my attention. And I noticed that they really fall into two camps. There are the people who took the test hoping to find something. And that's particularly powerful with, um, say, children of adoptive families. Um, people who took the test looking for something and hoping to find something. And so if they do find it, it's like an answered prayer. It's the best thing ever. Or there are people who are completely blindsided by the results and find out something that they maybe wish they didn't know, but they cannot then unknow it. 
So I had the idea, you know, I was thinking about what makes people fall into one camp or the other. And I had to, I had the idea to, to challenge myself to tell a story where we had one person in each camp, you know, the person who was looking for something and then the person who's going to be blindsided and thinks it's the best thing ever. But then something happens to make them sort of switch positions where maybe the person who wanted to take the test sort of ends up wishing that they hadn't and the person who was blindsided, it it could end up being a good thing. So I wanted to tell a story where they sort of switch places and then it becomes, you know, can they switch back? Can they come over to the same side? Um, Yeah. I love that. Right before we got on, I was checked my email and I got one of those 23andMe emails that says, you have a new DNA relative. (laughs) Do y'all get those? And it's usually like a seventh cousin, 42 times removed. But it was just so coincidental that right before we started talking, I got that email and I didn't check it yet. But there is that ping, like you have a relative you don't know about and you, and your mind goes straight to secret life, right? <laughs> um, so not only speaking about origins of stories, but we here at Friends in Fiction always think it's interesting to talk a little about of the origins of why we became writers. And a question we love to ask our authors, because it's so enlightening, is what were the values around reading and writing and your childhood? And I know. And how do they how do you think those values around reading and writing not only form the writer you are today, but maybe even specifically how it influenced a million reasons why? Um, Well, I. I think I've just always been a voracious reader and I was read to as a child. And that's something that as a parent now, um, I try to instill in my own kids. I have a, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and we still read together every night. Um, that was one of the only good things about school going remote for them last year was yeah. that they both read so much more, including my my first grader was a kindergartner at the time, and I think she ended up reading. By the end of remote schooling, all these kids were backsliding, but because just because we were reading so much and reading together, she ended up reading on like a second grade level. So I think, you know, I, that is something that I grew up with, just learning to appreciate the love of story. It's a great way to end a day, all reading together at bedtime, kind of winding down together, setting aside your problems of the day, and... sinking into something else and spending that there's a connection I feel like when you share a story with somebody else and I think that was what my parents raised me to feel by sharing stories with me and what I hope to share with my own kids and I guess if I think about the themes of a million reasons why it really is a book about how all of our stories are connected and about connection and the idea that you could have a connection if you want it and deciding whether or not you want to pursue it. I love that. That's so well said. And that is, I mean, it's just such a new, interesting whole world that is, that's opening up, I think. And, and it's, it's been the story I think has really kept me for sure. Like feeling like myself and um, connected to people in the outside world during all of this craziness. Um, Okay. So I know we talked about this just a little bit, but I want to delve into it a little more deeply. So I know you said that you had been reading about, you know, this DNA testing and how there were the two camps. And 
Was there any story in particular, like anyone you knew or any specific moment where you were like, okay, this is something that I really want to talk about, or like, this is a story? And the answer maybe no. I mean, I'm just, I'm interested. Well, actually reading all of the stories almost makes you not want to write a novel about it because okay. you think, okay. you think, what could I possibly come up with? That would right. be stranger or more interesting or more <laughs> engaging than what is like, it's a total um, fact is stranger than fiction kind of situation, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was thinking about when I was thinking about, you know, the two camps of people um, who take these tests. And also, there are also people who find out that they have connections out there. Like Patty said, there are people, yeah. there are people who are okay to just get that email and no matter how close the connection is, just kind of know about that and never want to pursue it. And then there are right. people who it really means something to them to have somebody else. You know, it's like, uh, what does it mean to you to be a family? How much does it mean yeah. to you um, to share a DNA with somebody? There's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer to that. Um, it's different for everybody. It's really personal. But I was thinking about you know, some of the personal reasons that people might have for taking these tests. And I landed on the idea of a medical reason, you know, what if somebody had a medical reason for taking this test that would make it really complicated right out the gate. So I was looking at, initially, I was I was trying to think of what sort of medical condition this character might have. And I was looking at things like needing a bone marrow transplant and kind of digging around. And I I landed on chronic kidney disease because, um, for a few reasons. First of all, it's really common. And second of all, there's a really wide range of experiences with it. Um, well, it's just such a, it's such a fluke thing. I mean, you can end up with kidney disease from something as simple as a strep throat infection. Um, so it's one of those things. I think I'm always interested as a storyteller and just in, as a human and the kind of thing that can just really seem like rotten luck, you know, like, yeah. oh my goodness, this totally innocuous thing just changed my whole life. And another thing that can bring it on is sometimes pregnancy, a certain kind of experience with your pregnancy can bring on mm-hmm. chronic kidney disease. So I, I was thinking it would be interesting to have a young mother who started suffering from this in her pregnancy and who is now raising a child on her own and sort of started building this character in my head. And I have a really good friend who's a renal dietitian. And I already mm-hmm. knew a lot about the work, you know, if you're a kidney patient, your diet is extremely important. So she's the nutritionist who will go into the dialysis centers and speak with patients about what they're eating and what changes they can make in their diet to be healthier. And she every day spends time with people who are on the transplant list. So I had this idea for a character and I went out to lunch with her and ran the idea of the story by her and asked if she thought the premise was plausible. And she thought it was very plausible. And then she gave me a whole bunch more information. And I would say by the time we got done with our lunch that day, I was really up and running. So it wasn't necessarily one um, particular story, but it was, I think, having a friend who worked in that profession and having her insights early on um, really kind of sparked my curiosity. And that was how I landed on Sila as a character. Mm. So funny. It's not just DNA that connects us, which is part of what your story novel is about. But it's the stories that connect us, right? So they connect us as family, as friends. And, you know, I read the novel and loved it. And I didn't tell you them, but you talking about it now. When I was a nurse 
in graduate school, my job was as a research nurse for kidney failure. Oh, I did not so, know that. I know. So for wow. two years, I worked on a research project for how to change diet and kidney disease so they didn't have to have transplants. And so I saw that story play out wow. over and over and then searching for someone for to get a kidney from. So your book is really powerful by bringing in, just like the tagline on your website, bringing in the real things of our life and unfolding them in fiction. And this is your fourth novel, right? Yes, correct. So do you see any themes that you continue to come back to time and again and time and again as you're writing? Um, I think the idea of secret, people always say, oh, you write about secrets a lot. I think mm. on the surface, it looks like I'm really into <laughs> secrets, <laughs> keeping secrets, which I'm not in my real life. Um, but I think what I'm actually more interested in beneath that is just, um, yeah, the, the stories that we tell and the stories that we choose not to tell and not yeah. to share about our own lives. I mean, whenever people talk about keeping a secret, they say that like it's a nefarious thing, but you don't necessarily have to go around, you know, broadcasting your story all the time. So, you know, in all of my novels, I like, I really like to, they're all told from multiple points of view. And I like to tell stories where, you know, it's not extraneous. I like to tell stories where you really need this person's perspective on the story and this person's perspective in order to get the entire story. I mean, we're all sort of unreliable narrators just by virtue mm -hmm. of our own True. you know, bias. Yeah. So all of my other novels have been told by at least three different points of view, but A Million Reasons Why is the first one that I've told from only two. It's the two half-sisters, and I was literally thinking of it as two halves of a story, and we have we have to have the two halves to get the entire story. Mm. I love that. That's um. I, I like to do that. You know, I, I don't know that I could have verbalized it, but I think maybe that's why I like to make multiple points of view too, because we are unreliable narrators of our own life story. That's for sure. And you could tell the exact same. Don't you feel like you could rewrite any of your novels? And if you change the point of view from of any given scene, you would change the, you change the yeah. novel a little bit. You, ab you're absolutely right about that. And I'm, and I know you do this as well, but I try not to, there might be like a key scene or two that you see from both POVs, but in general, you're really, the story's moving forward, like one character at a time, but you're right. If you switch that POV, you would have a totally different story. Interesting. That's why I love doing these. <laughs> Teaches me what I'm doing. <laughs> what I'm already doing. Yeah. Um, no, but so speaking of writing and this great community that we have, you and I are both tall poppy writers, which is so great. Um, and I love the group. And I just was interested about, you know, your experience about being a part of a writing and kind of networking community and, um, if that had affected or changed your work or even this side of the work, sort of the more marketing side of the work for you? Yeah, I think, um, well, for me, since I started as an editor, you know, I was working at Writer's Digest magazine. I'd worked my way up to being editorial director there. And um, I was interviewing, uh, I was surrounded by writers. So I was interviewing writers for our cover stories. I was working with writers who were writing for the magazine. You know, I was a writer myself. Um, as part of that job, I was constantly at writing conferences and workshops and, you know, just fielding questions on email and on Twitter every day and things like that. And when I started um, 
publishing not and I guess for anyone listening if you're not familiar with what Writers Digest magazine is it's a magazine for people who want to be writers whether they want to be you know journalists or novelists or memoirists really any kind of writers and it's the it's been around since 1920 it's the leading publication for writers in North America and the whole time I had that job I was I've always been a journalist and a nonfiction writer but I was sort of moonlighting as a closet fiction writer for many years before I sold my first novel and um, speaking of secrets right speaking of secrets. <laughs> yes exactly um I was yeah I was so um you know I felt very confident in my editorial work and as a journalist and I really had no idea if I was any good at fiction writing so that was a huge step to even attempt to you know put myself out there but once I published a couple of novels it was when I signed my third novel contract was when I realized, you know, I had two really little kids at home. I'm running a magazine. I'm on more and more novel deadlines. And then you have all the marketing and promotional work come in and something had to give. So I stepped back from the magazine where now I contribute from the outside as an editor at large. And I think at that point when I became a full-time writer, it would have been so isolating to just step back from the writing community. I was so involved in the writing community, you know? So for me, uh, joining with a group of other writers who are also working on their own careers and supporting each other and trading information and support behind the scenes, but also just, you know, friendship, even if it's just, you know, water cooler (laughs) chatter. um, It's so important. And especially this year, if I didn't have these groups of, you know, friends online, and if we didn't have things like what the two of you have done with your other colleagues at Friends in Fiction, it would be so lonely. I mean, that's what I really think of it as like colleagues, you know, you're all working on your own career, but it would be very lonely if you didn't have each other. You know, that's so interesting too, because I think, I don't know about you, Patty, but I came from like the exact opposite of that. Like, whereas you came from this group of always being surrounded by writers and then kind of stepping back from it, I came into writing not even knowing anyone who was a writer. And so along that way, like trying to find those people because I knew I needed advice and help and community and someone that knew what I was talking about. (laughs) It is. Well, and for me, it was almost the opposite problem where I had to really get people to stop seeing me as an editor (laughs) And particularly as the editor of Writer's Digest, like, you know, once you become a novelist too, you, you know, somebody will sort of make a seat for you at the table, literally sometimes at a conference, like make save you a seat at the table and you sit down and it's like, if a whole bunch of people were just trading stories about their age, what, what their agents were or were not doing for them or like real talk complaining about something, they would all stop. As soon as I sat yes. down, because it was like that circle of trust is broken because now we have the, this oh. editor here. And I'm, but I'm having the same problems and concerns right. as everybody else. Like, I don't want to wear this editor hat right now. I'm at the novelist table. I, I need you guys to, like, yeah, I need some real talk. So for me, it was almost the opposite where I had to, you know, I feel like there was, um, I had this professional editorial persona and people saw me as a publishing insider on the other side of the desk. And Mm -hmm. I had to kind of earn my stripes on the other side. (laughs) And it's so funny. Not only was I thinking it was the opposite, Christy, like you, not only about having to find, I did not know a soul when I was writing my first book, not one. 
But but also the flip and opposite is I had no idea how to edit. Right. <laughs> so you came from this whether whether we want to call it right brain to left brain, and we came from left brain to right brain. You came in, you came in the side door where Christy and I came in the front door completely lost on both the community and the editing. So, okay, are you ready? It's time for a lightning round. For a lightning round. Okay, lay it on me, Patty. Be kind. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Oh, just keep, just follow your gut. Keep doing Mm -hmm. what you're doing. Following your gut is so, um, it's like, it sounds so easy, but it's not. Because sometimes no. it's really not the practical, so logical thing to do. And I think it's harder as we get older. I look back at this is supposed to be lightning round. I'm not supposed to be making comments here. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it's I funny. started this it. Is I just, started it. <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking about this to myself in the car, like driving alone the other day, about how when you're younger, it's easier to listen to your gut because I think your decisions feel, maybe they feel bigger, but in reality, there's sort of less writing on them. You know, and as you get older, you start to question a little bit more because you've lived a little bit more and you like know what can go wrong or. (laughs) Um, Well, I think the older you get, the more you feel like your decisions affect other people, too. Yes. You have children and a spouse and aging parents. And when you're younger, you can kind of be selfish isn't the right word, but it's okay to be a little bit more self-centered at a certain stage. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So where do you get your inspiration? Oh, from leaving my house, which I'm really excited to do again. (laughs) That's such a perfect answer. Okay. If you weren't a writer, what would your dream job be? Oh, that's tough. Maybe a, um, maybe a therapist. I say that all the time. I say I'm a pretend psychotherapist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She does say that. I want to be a country music star, so y'all need to dream a little bit bigger. That's all I'm going to say. Can we have any talent? Do you have singing talent? Can we no. pretend we have? Oh, no, okay. that, no, that wasn't the question. Just It could just be anything. <laughs> I am great at memorizing song lyrics. Um, if only I had the voice to go with them. So, oh, well. That's fine. I bet you do. Mm. If you mm. could trade places with someone for one day, who would it be? That is... That is a really hard question. Maybe um, Reese Witherspoon. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's good. I mean, you want to talk about being surrounded by um, cool women's stories. She has, she can just wave her magic wand and make it happen for somebody, you know. But she's got such a cool sense of style and such good taste and She's just such an amazing person. Yeah. Do she I have to switch for only one day? Can I switch for like a yeah, year? Like a while. Can yeah, you a switch to, to her and then choose all our books and then come back to being you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be great. If we could work okay. that into the plan. <laughs> Wave my magic wand. Okay. <laughs> Last one. Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? I mean... Besides us. I, besides you and Reese Witherspoon. Um, I, can I give a total schoolgirl answer and just say yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal? 
Yeah. I want to fight Jake Gyllenhaal. And I want to come and join that. One of the last, one of the last and best things I did in 2019 before everything shut down was I was in New York City for the Writer's Digest annual conference. I was on the faculty there and I got tickets to see Jake Gyllenhaal on Broadway in a two-man show. And so it was 50% Jake Gyllenhaal live and it was just, it was amazing. It was so cool. I'm so glad I got to, that was my last Broadway experience before Broadway. Yeah. Like really go down. out with a bang before everything. So mine was Mean Girls. Oh. <laughs> which was also mine really was good. Dear Evan Hansen. That was <gasps> Ooh, that's a good one too. Oh, those that's both sound one. so good. I can't wait to get mm-hmm. back to it. I cannot wait. Well, I was I like by wait. myself and I grabbed one of those like single tickets because I like just realized I was gonna have time to go. And I was like, what is something that like I know for sure like my husband's not gonna want to go see and I'm saying mean girls it is (laughs) oh well this has been so fun um thank you for coming on Jessica we're so excited about your new book we're just thrilled for you it's gonna be a huge hit we are absolutely sure and so everyone who's listening if you have not read a million reasons why yet go get it right now and Jessica before we leave can you tell um our listeners where they can find you around the web Yes, I'm on the web all the time. Um, <laughs> way too much. Way too much. I will. You will be so shocked how fast I reply to your comment. Um, <laughs> I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Jessica Strauser Author, and I'm on Twitter at Jessica Strauser. And you can also go to my website. I'm doing a fair amount of virtual events this spring, promoting a million reasons why. And you can go to my website jessicastrauser.com for updated events links or to sign up for my newsletter which I hardly ever send only if I have real real news awesome all right well thank you so much y'all have a great afternoon thank you guys for having me on thank you for tuning in join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7pm Eastern Time and please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.